In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Welcome to the Spectrum. I'm Nathan Seelove. And I'm Michael Bloom. And today we're going to be talking to you about the uh, elections that happened last week. We'll talk about a little bit about impeachment, and we'll talk about the primary update, all tied together with uh, something called the defeasibility test as our theme this week. Yeah, why don't you walk us through what that is? So the defeasibility test is a intellectual honesty test, basically. So I want all of my viewers to think about a policy or an idea or some type of philosophical ideology that you believe. I want you to think about that specific point of view. And I want you to ask yourself. Okay, I've got mine. Okay. I want you to ask yourself, what would it take to change your mind? If I could present you a set of facts that would change your mind, assuming those facts were true, what would they be? And if the answer to that hmm. question is nothing, well, then you're not being intellectually honest with yourself because the only reason why you could possibly answer that nothing would ever change your mind is if there was no reason for you to believe that in the first place. So maybe it happened because you were raised to think that, maybe it happened because you just feel social pressure to believe that. But if you are not able to view any possible world in which you don't believe something, then that means that it lacks falsifiability, which makes it an illogical viewpoint to have, or at least the way you came to that viewpoint is illogical. So the basic structure then is something like, uh, judgments should be based on reason, reason judgments should be based on facts, and if facts were otherwise, it should follow that the reason and the judgment would have to be otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. So, and this is also a pretty good thing to do uh, if you are ever in an argument with someone to sort of just set the parameters of the argument. So before you've even made your first argument, before you've even started it or established the parameters of the resolution, you should ask your uh, the person that you're talking to, okay, what would it take to change your mind? And if their answer is nothing, well, then don't even bother arguing with them. I mean, you might as well be arguing with a brick wall. It's They've established that they're not going to have an intellectually honest conversation about something. So there's no point in having it in the first place. So a tip this Thanksgiving, as you're having conversations with conservative family members uh, <laughs> or, or even liberal family members, honestly, uh, yeah. start off by asking that question. Because um, that, yeah. that could really shorten the amount of time you waste going around in circles. Yeah, I, I know a number of people in which I've asked that question and they've refused to answer it. And I've just been like, okay, well, you know, have fun in La La Land then. <laughs> you know? But let's be clear. Let's be clear also. Like, if this sounds like something that's pretty challenging to do, that's because it is. It's like, yeah. it takes a lot of intellectual discipline to think through an a set of ideas, especially ideas that you've held for a really long time and try to go back to like, what are the root assumptions and root facts that are fundamental to this being true? 
And yeah. so it's it's worth taking the time to do it because um, it helps ensure the rigor of your opinions. Yeah. And one thing that I know is difficult, especially for me, is that sometimes a lot of your ideology does come from your upbringing. I mean, I, I know that I did grow up in a very liberal family, um, and that definitely... It could be argued that that did have a large influence on my ideology. Um, so there are some aspects of my ideology that if you had asked me about several years ago, I might have failed the defeasibility test. And what's important is not necessarily that you look at all the times you failed the defeasibility test and think, well, I'm never going to be an intellectually honest person ever. No, what you do is you recognize, okay, I wasn't being honest with myself. I was more interested in face saving than I was in finding truth. And now let's move on. Let me try to actually think about what would it take to change my mind on the values that I hold dear to myself. Exactly. And as someone who has gone through that transformation myself, in contrast, Nathan, I was brought up in a very um, conservative household in a lot of ways. Uh, and through my education and re-education, I've kind of reconstructed my worldview significantly, um, but that was a that was a long process, and and many times it was uh, the result of challenges like the defeasibility test that didn't take on the first try. You know, you yeah. I would have to like be prompted a few times in order to make those changes. Um, yeah. Also, importantly, this doesn't necessarily mean that what you believe is wrong. It's not a truth test. It's a yeah test of the logical and factual underpinning of a belief. Yeah. Now, yeah, it is, it is important to recognize that there is such thing as the fallacy fallacy. Um, the fallacy fallacy is if a person comes to a conclusion in a logically fallacious way, that that conclusion must be false. That's not always true. Sometimes people come to the right conclusion through illogical means. Think about like the earth going around the sun. There are all kinds of you could have guessed you could have you could have just guessed at that way before any astronomical understanding and gotten to the right answer <laughs> in a totally wrong way now you were right you just weren't right about being right <laughs> yeah exactly or about how you got to be right We're going to try to apply the defeasibility test to several different stories today. And one of the biggest ones that I was very excited about covering, and unfortunately, we were not able to cover it last week because we record this on Monday and it hadn't happened yet. Michael, what happened? Nathan, we had a banner week for elections in the United States, especially in our home state of Virginia, where Democrats for the first time in 20 plus years, hold all three levers of power. Hooray. <laughs> yeah, definitely first time in my lifetime. Like I, as a kid, I remember Virginia being a deeply red state on every level. Yeah, and it's been a long time going through that transition to being more purple and more blue. Um, and it's largely because of some very specific pockets or at least, at least historically has been. Um, but the, the state is trending more and more blue. Um, just to give a call out to some of the other states that had elections, um, Kentucky also had a governor that went Democrat. 
So that means that the Republicans who previously had the trifecta or control of all three levers of power now lost one. So that's a pretty cool uh, And trend. the Kentucky race was extremely... Contentious. Uh, it was extremely close. Yeah. And it was... What I love about this is uh, Trump actually came to uh, uh, to campaign for the current Republican incumbent, who is uh, uh, Governor Matt Bevin. Um, and he basically said, well, you can't let this person lose because if they lose, then everybody's going to say that this was the worst loss in the history of the world. And you, <laughs> you can't let them do that to me. Yeah. Well, Kentucky he, did that he, to you, buddy. Yeah, he literally set it up as a referendum on himself, thinking it was too safe. <laughs> what I thought was really funny was um, in every single other state chamber, the Republican swept. This was just Matt Bevin was a uniquely unpopular governor. And this definitely does hold some implications for uh, 2020. Fingers crossed. At least I hope so. Uh, the state that did prove too solidly red was Mississippi, where Republicans continue to hold all levers of power. Yeah, but it was a significantly closer race than uh, it has been in other, um, in other years. So uh, there is definitely a clear Trump effect going on that is making other that is causing other Republicans to suffer. Yeah, exactly. And uh, New Jersey, congratulations, stayed all blue as usual. <laughs> yep um, that was that was surprising <laughs> yeah big surprise big surprise so what makes these elections especially the one in virginia such a big deal well there are several reasons uh first off um, i actually want to briefly mention something about kentucky um so andy uh or, or pardon um uh, matt bevan was only able to lose this because he was a uniquely unpopular Republican governor in the state of Kentucky. But what's nice is that there is another uniquely unpopular Republican that will be on the ballot in uh, in 2020, and that is Mitch McConnell, the current majority leader of the Senate, who I would actually argue is the most corrupt politician in the United States. And yes, that includes Donald Trump. Um, in many ways, he is responsible for a lot of what is wrong with like the bureaucratic corruption in uh, Washington, and he is going to be on the ballot, and Kentucky hates him. He has like a his approval rating, I think it's like in the 20s or 30s, and this is showing that there is a coalition of people who are willing to vote for a Democrat that could at least potentially give someone running against um Mitch McConnell, a plurality. So there's major implications for that. For Virginia, uh, there are several major implications that, um, you know, some that affect, you know, mainly on a state level, and I'll briefly touch on those, but I don't want to get too into that, and some that uh, have more federal government implications. First off, there's the fact that now that Democrats have control of all three levers of power in uh, Virginia, there are several different progressive uh, initiatives that Virginia has been falling behind on that can finally be implemented. Uh, we can finally start to work on actually raising the minimum wage. The minimum wage in Virginia is still the federal minimum wage, which is uh, $7.25, um, which is insane. Um, that just yeah, desperately there can low. be further expansions. <laughs> 
to uh, to Medicaid, um, even after we, we did finally accept the uh, federal expansion of Medicaid in the previous year after uh, Ralph Northam took office and after we mm-hmm. narrowed the uh, majority of the Republicans in the uh, House of Delegates and the Senate. Um, one that mm-hmm. I'm personally a little bit less excited about, but that's because I'm, uh, I'm not a pure leftist in this particular category, is uh, gun control. Um, there's definitely some gun control measures that Democrats did uh, advocate for on the campaign trail that they will finally get a chance to implement. Um, and I'm sure a lot of Democrats are very happy about that. Um, yeah, this is, and this is kind of a, actually a touchy issue in Virginia at this point, because, you know, back in June, um, there was a mass shooting in Virginia Beach, Virginia, Um, where 12 people were murdered in a municipal building, actually 17 miles from where I was sitting in an airport at the time. I actually remember, Um, I actually remember texting you when that happened um, to be like, Hey man, you okay? Uh, I I remember that. Yeah. Which I, I really appreciate. And is, is horrifies me to this day that people need to get those text messages with fair regularity. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And, And, so and and that kind of jump started some more uh, robust gun control conversations in the Virginia legislature that got that kind of stymied and, and went nowhere, um, and that now, likely in January, we'll have some more um, proposals on the table that the government that uh, the Democrats might actually move yeah, forward on. Absolutely. Also, um, LGBT rights. Uh, LGBT. The LGBT community has not seen employment protections in the state of Virginia yet, and um, with Democrats in control of all three levers of power, that might finally happen. Uh, violence against the LGBTQ community is not a considered a hate crime in the state of Virginia. Um, perhaps that can finally change. Um, I mean, there's there's lots of there's lots of things that on a state level that are very important that uh, Democrats can finally start fighting for. But let's talk about how this could potentially affect the country as a whole. First off, the 2020 census is coming up. And the reason why the 2020 census is important is because it determines it will determine the redistricting now. Virginia, for a very long time, mm-hmm. has been a heavily gerrymandered state in favor of the Republicans because it's been controlled by Republicans. In fact, the district that Michael and I uh, have lived yeah. in for pretty much our whole lives uh, was originally heavily gerrymandered for Frank Wolf, who was a Republican who was in the House of Representatives for a very long time. And what's kind of interesting was the way they had gerrymandered it was they got in enough of the suburbs, uh, which at the time was a, a little bit more Republican, um, to try to take some vo- votes away from Democrats and other districts, uh, while also bringing it into some of the more rural areas at the top of Virginia. So like where Michael and I lived, and it was heavily gerrymandered for Frank Wolf for, I mean, my whole life. Uh, until he retired, and then it was taken over by Barbara Comstock for several years. But now, in the 2018 election, it switched mm-hmm. over to the Democrat. Bec- it switched over to a Democrat because of yeah. all of the realignments that have been happening in the suburbs. So the Republicans basically gerrymandered a district for themselves that has now ended up being gerrymandered for the Democrats. Yeah, and that's Im- and that's like kind of an interesting thing about gerrymandering. So like 
let's do a little bit of take a little bit of time to talk about what exactly gerrymandering is and kind of why it's a problem. Um, so the basics of gerrymandering is that it is the process of intentionally drawing district lines um, to uh, keep certain groups in certain districts and isolate other groups or divide other groups in other districts so that you can get um, groups of people that will reliably vote in a certain direction to all be either grouped together or so dispersed across uh, groups in the case of opponents uh, that they can't actually form like a voting block. So for example, you might put all Republicans or a, a majority of Republicans in one district so you can reliably predict that that district will go red. And then you might take the Democrats and divide them up among a bunch of districts so that none of those Democrats can actually, even though they're like literally houses next to each other, so that um, they will never be able to form a coalition of voters and make reliably blue district. Um, yeah. This topic has been in the news a lot. There are cases going to the U.S. Supreme Court about it because it really is, as we gain a better understanding of statistics and a better ability to predict which groups will vote which way, the power of gerrymandering to undermine the democratic process and undermine the ability of our a democratic republic to function effectively is like is pr pretty incredibly powerful um basically it's whoever has the best predictive tools and the most money and happens to have the luck of getting the opportunity to redistrict gets the power and that's yeah. untenable so basically the representatives choose their voters rather than the other way around which is yeah <laughs> just insane um one thing that's important to mention about this, for the sake of being intellectually honest, is that Democrats gerrymander too. Absolutely. And that needs to be called out. I mean... Yeah. It's, it's a political strategy. It's not a partisan strategy. Exactly. So, like, Maryland is heavily gerrymandered for the Democrats. So, one thing that I would, that I, uh, would go ahead and say to any of, you know, my... Any... Uh, additional Democrats from Virginia who are listening, um, if the if the Democrats who have taken control of the state legislature, if they do a 180 and start gerrymandering for the Repub for uh, the Democrats, we need to call them out because regardless of whether or not that helps us achieve certain political goals, it is an inherently corrupt system that they are participating in, and that is mm -hmm. not okay. We need yep. to be there to say, you said that you were going to fight for democracy. You're a Democrat. It's supposed to be in your name. Mm -hmm. If we let them get away with that, then we are not <laughs> yeah. being intellectually honest with ourselves. We are being, we are cheating the system and we're taking advantage of that. And mm -hmm. if you believe in that, I mean, you're not a real Democrat. Yeah. It's, it's a fundamental defect in the ability of, um, our political structures to be representative of their constituents. It's, it might be one of the most important um, problems with our, like structural problems with our democracy right now, um, aside from problems of structural inequality. Um, so basically pressure your representatives to fight the practice of gerrymandering, not just the current, um, districts and 
yeah, let's go make this a much more fair state for all you Virginians yeah. listening. Exactly, exactly. And this this does affect us on a federal level because those Democrats that will be writing that, that will be creating those new districts, uh, they're going to be creating them for the House of Representatives. So yeah, the number of Democrats and the number of Republicans that will be sent to Washington um, to make laws for the country will definitely be affected by the election that happened in Virginia. Yeah, it's got national and local implications. And another point on like local implications, not just for Virginians, but for everybody. Remember that, you know, there are the narrative of big sweeping federal issues is really compelling and is covered in the news a lot. But remember that like your local elections might have a much larger impact on your actual day-to-day life. So it pays for you to pay attention to those. So all the way from the bottom to the top, like local elections are where these issues start and they often signal um, like signal larger groups. So, you know, pay attention to your local elections because just like this case, um, elections at your state can have national implications. Yeah. And so let's talk about the really big national implication of Virginia. And that is the Equal Equal Rights Rights Amendment. Finally, after it was originally proposed um, in uh, 1972, uh, past Congress, rather, um, on a bipartisan basis in 1972, the last state to ratify it um, prior to uh, when Nevada ratified it in 2017 and Illinois uh, ratified it in 2018 was Indiana in 1977 yeah the the protracted history of this amendment can't be overstated like it was first introduced to congress in 1923 nearly 100 years ago and then it took from 1923 to 1972 to get through congress and then from 1972 (laughs) until november 2019 or actually more like probably january 2020 in order for it to actually make some additional progress because the the belief is that with um democrats holding all three levers of power it's likely that virginia will become the 38th and last required state um to make this the newest amendment to the constitution to ratify the era yeah it actually came pretty close to being passed in virginia uh last year but mm-hmm. um, ultimately, uh, a House committee refused to take it up, and a, a Senate which, committee defeated it in a nine to five cast. Which, by the way, all of the no votes were cast by men, and that doesn't surprise me at all. It, it doesn't. It honestly, it baffles me whether like why this could possibly be a partisan issue. Like we'll go into some more details about like what exactly ERA is, but. For the most part, it's like a pretty common sense amendment that yeah. enshrines in the Constitution laws that we, for the most part, expect and and reasons and like theories of justice that we kind of expect and take for granted to begin with. Yeah, it's like, in fact, who could possibly be against this? In fact, if you ask most, if you ask most people, um, and, and let me let me read the sections of the ERA because these are extremely simple. Yeah. All right, section one. Yeah. Equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of sex. Section 2. 
Congress shall have the power to enforce by appropriate legislation the provisions of this article. Section 3, this amendment shall take effect two years after the date of ratification. Now, I almost guarantee you that if you ask any random person on the street, um, is, it in is, it in is it enshrined in the Constitution that there shall be equality between sexes? Most of them will say, oh, yeah, of course that is. I mean, that just makes sense, right? But it is yeah. not. Yeah. Like every, like it's, it's astounding, but most, and, and it makes sense. Like it is a seriously obvious principle of justice that there should be yeah. equality between the sexes. But the only portion of the constitution that contains any reference to the sexes is the 19th amendment, which provide women the right to yeah. vote. And you know what? One of the arguments that, uh, I, I remember reading one of the Republicans in Virginia saying for, against the ratification of the ERA. Um, he that? said that if we pass the ERA, that that'll make it legal for uh, women to show their breasts in public. And the funny thing about that is I think that he came to an important point without realizing it. Because maybe if you think about the fact that not having equality between sexes has an impact on who gets punished for what crime, maybe you should think, huh, maybe the issue is with society and, you know, not the law itself. Un unpack that for me a little more. Well, okay. So the fact that we sexualize women's breasts to the point where um, in most states it is illegal for a woman to be shirtless, um, that is an indication of an inherently sexist trope that we have created based on the fact that we sexualize an aspect of a woman's body that is not sexualized in men's. And that in and of itself mm -hmm. is its own societal problem. And he seems to realize that, oh, that does represent an inequality, but he was almost taking that for granted by establishing that as a, if we didn't continue that inequality, well then we should just make sure that they don't have equal rights at all. And, and, I, and I think that that gets at the underlying assumptions of, of why someone might be against this. And the, the implicit belief is that yes, there is inequality, but that that type of inequality is good. One of the one of the most prevalent arguments that Ruth Bader Ginsburg had to defeat in her her work with the ACLU was to defeat the belief that women benefited from their unequal yeah. status in society. Yeah. People honestly believe that believe that women are unequal, should be unequal, yeah, and benefit from it. Which it's it's incredibly silly and frustrating in 2019 the expectation that a man should hold a door open for a woman that excuses the fact that women are sexually assaulted disproportionately women make less money than men uh women are taken less seriously at work than men but we hold doors open for them so i mean it's basically equal right yeah absolutely and like I, women like <laughs> they earn less money because they don't have to go out and earn money they can be taken care of exactly yeah, recently, um, recently, Jess and I started watching Mad Men, which for those of you that don't know, is um, a show that takes place in the 60s uh, 
in a workplace that shows a lot of the gender disparities at the time. <laughs> and let me just say, anybody that thinks that we didn't need the sexual revolution or second wave feminism or any of that, watch that show and be thankful. Seriously. Seriously. So we're going to talk a little bit about the importance of this, but also before we get there, you might, there's actually like a, probably a pretty good reason why a lot of people would think that the ERA is already in the constitution. And that's because we do have laws that provide a lot of the protections that the ERA would imply and ultimately enshrine in the constitution. So many of you, Title nine, yeah, exactly. Title nine and title seven of the civil rights act of 1964 it's and so like it's in there but the fact is that those are laws rather than yeah, they're not constitution they're constitutional, not constitutional amendment yeah. so they could be overturned or reversed with a simple majority as opposed yeah. to requiring a total removal of a constitutional amendment which would which would require another amendment so two-thirds yeah. of the states would have to ratify in addition to the the uh, congressional requirements so yeah, which has only which has only happened once, and it was because people like alcohol. Mm, prohibition, baby. <laughs> um, so Nathan, yeah. let's walk through what exactly this does and why it's important. So, um, the implications are pretty uh, pretty broad. For the first of all, um, it has the potential to boost or to bolster. Um, pay equity arguments it mm -hmm. can it's likely that it'll support um, claims of women in domestic violence disputes um, it'll fight help fight pregnancy discrimination um, and ultimately this one's for you guys it could it may lead to a requirement that paternity leave match maternity leave yeah um, from work which I mean it should <laughs> you know yeah um, <laughs> yeah exactly yeah and also um, um, it does have implications for the LGBTQ community as well, because there's a very simple argument uh, that has actually been made on several occasions that discrimination based on sexual orientation is by its nature, nature discrimination based on sex. Because if, a, yeah. uh, if someone who was born biologically male was marrying someone who was born biologically female, then... Um, you are taking sex into a, uh, you are taking sex into account in the decision between whether or not they're allowed to get married or whether or not they're allowed to adopt children or any of that. You are taking biological sex into account. So if that is enshrined into the Constitution, that is another thing that can help lead to uh, greater equality for both trans uh, the trans community and uh, the gay bisexual community, queer community. Yeah. Exactly. And that argument was actually just made in front of the Supreme Court a few weeks ago. And the court is currently um, reviewing that case that was brought before them. So, yeah, this has the potential to not only enshrine um, rights for women in the Constitution, but also enshrine um, constitutional rights for LGBTQ people. Actually, and this is actually the the last kind of point that I want to make sure we touch on is that this could potentially raise the required level of scrutiny um, when courts review discrimination cases. So just to go into that just a little bit, not to go too deep, but when a court reviews 
a different types of discrimination cases. They, they review them with different levels of scrutiny. So there's just rational basis, which just means that the um, government in making a law that is that may be discriminatory um, just has to have basically just an okay, good reason, will default to their judgment that um, the law is necessary. Then there's intermediate scrutiny where the court is not going to look too closely, but they're going to require that the um, state have a good reason for for enacting a law that and that can't really be served by non-discriminatory laws. That's currently where sex-based discrimination sits with intermediate scrutiny. Then there's strict scrutiny. That is the the highest level of scrutiny that a court will will have will use. And basically that requires that the state not only have a compelling state interest, so a really important reason for having a law, but they must prove that their law is the most narrow least discriminatory version that can serve that compelling state interest. So it's a really high level of scrutiny. That's where that's where race-based discrimination sits today at at strict scrutiny. So being able to get sex discrimination up to that level of scrutiny means that when you bring cases to courts, uh, specifically, you know, federal courts and the Supreme Court, you're going to be able to make arguments about the efficaciousness and the reasoning behind the law rather than just talking about, you know, um, whether it's uh, like on its face a bad law and bad reasoning. You'll be actually like able to dive into the reasoning behind it. And it could really strengthen the potential for um, cases that, uh, that support women LGBTQ. But we will say that it is not all rainbows and sunshine over here in Virginia with regard to the ERA. Uh, and that's because there may be a bit of a process hiccup in that the amendment contained a ratification deadline of 1982, which basically means that the amendment had to be ratified by 1982 in order for it to be de facto a part of the Constitution. Yeah. Um, but the courts could rule that that doesn't matter and that uh, Virginia passes it, it becomes an amendment, or the or Congress could vote to extend the deadline, which we obviously have the votes to do that in the House, and there are several Republican senators, such as uh, Lisa Murkowski from, uh, from Alaska and Susan Collins from Maine, who have indicated, who have actually co-sponsored legislation in order to uh, extend the uh, ERA deadline. So it's very likely that could also pass the Senate as well. Yeah. So overall, the outlook for this this amendment is still very good. And at the very least, it's the best, most positive outlook that it's ever had in its history. All right. So now we're going to bring you to one of our happiest and most productive segments each week. Uh, tips for good. What is this week's tip for good? So this week we're going to be reminding you that you should not be putting plastic bags in your home recycling. Huh. Interesting. But but Michael, it, yeah, I thought that plastic is recyclable, therefore you have to put it in the recycle bin, right? You know, Nathan, as with many things, generalizations tend not to be true on the whole. And so the reality is that there are certain types of plastic that are very easily recyclable. 
hard plastics that you find in um, bottles, like soda bottles and water bottles, can be easily recycled. But soft plastics, like plastic bags, actually require special processes in order to recycle them. And basically what you need to do, instead of putting them in your home recycling, where what will actually happen is um, they'll go to the recycling center and they likely won't be sorted out from the rest of the recycling. And then they will get wound around the separators that fill, that uh, divide different types of recycling. And ultimately, they'll have to shut down the recycling process and manually go in and remove all those plastic bags. And it actually significantly negatively impacts the efficiency of recycling and raises costs. So you're actually hurting the recycling effort when you recycle plastic bags. Hmm. The right thing to do is actually to take them to uh, your local grocery store, which um, often have plastic bag recycling bins outside. And then that way they can actually go to a specific facility that can then be, um, and then they can be recycled. That seems like an extremely simple thing to do in order to be a slightly better person. I'd say so. Yeah. So remember, uh, when it comes to recycling, do not put in that plastic bag because you're going to do ultimately be doing more harm than good. And importantly, don't bring your recycling to the recycling center in plastic bags either because yeah. that poses the same problem. <laughs> yeah. All right. And that's tips for good. So up next, we're going to talk about Michael's favorite thing to talk about. And that there is, is nothing better in the world than this Trump impeachment. Oh yeah. Now, <laughs> bring it home, baby. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so this week will be the first public hearings to determine if the house uh, is going to impeach the president of the United States, Donald J. Trump. Spoiler alert. Um, they probably will. Yeah, I feel like they wouldn't be starting to have public hearings unless they, because the point of a public hearing, let's be clear, is not to investigate the case. The point of a public hearing is to show the American people the case. Yeah. You know, so you basically what you're doing at this point is making the argument to constituents why impeachment is a good move. Because ultimately, impeachment is not like a court trial. Yeah. Impeachment is a political activity um, which has to have a, on the whole, politically beneficial uh, end result. And so the point of public hearings is to, is to recount the case to the American yeah. people. Yeah. So, Nathan, we had some big news in terms of testimony last week. Uh, so what happened there? Well, you see, uh, Gordon Sondland, who was um, the uh, United States ambassador to the European Union, who was appointed by Donald Trump. Um, originally, Gordon Sondland claimed that there was no quid pro quo in Trump's phone call or with any of his dealings with Ukraine. And what's interesting, though, is he seems to have changed his testimony Apparently, all of the other in, testimonies that have been claiming that have been accusing uh, Trump of quid pro quo seems to have reminded Sondland that he, in fact, would not do well in prison. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. They didn't remind him of the truth per se. They more reminded him of the consequences of perjury. <laughs> <laughs> so he decided to be like, oh, wait, I, I didn't remember that he asked me to do quid pro quo, but he totally actually did ask me to do quid pro quo. <laughs> now let's point out the, like the fat, like the how fast this turnaround happened. His first testimony, where he said there was no quid pro quo, was in mid October, and on November fifth, his revised testimony came out saying that, um, in fact, he was understood that the aid package was. Uh, for Ukraine was contingent on Ukraine opening a public investigation that they requested, and also that he relayed this position to the Ukrainian officials. Yeah. And also, uh, Sondland testified that Trump personally instructed him to deny a quid pro quo to Bill Taylor, who was the uh, United States diplomat to Ukraine. So Trump has been instructing people to lie for him at pretty much every corner. So, remember how we talked about the defeasibility test earlier, Michael? Yeah, I remember that pretty well. So what was really interesting is that uh, Lindsey Graham, you know, totally reasonable South Carolina Republican, Lindsey Graham, who, by the (laughs) way, used to hate Donald Trump, and then he started golfing with him, and I guess... Trump was able to woo him with his great and unmatched genius. Um, Lindsey Graham established his own defeasibility test on the Ukraine situation with Donald Trump uh, prior to uh, prior to any of this happening. This was last month. It was an Axios interview in which Lindsey Graham said, quote, if you show me that Trump actually was engaged in quid pro quo outside of the phone call, that would be very disturbing. So he has indicated that quid pro quo is his bar for corruption, for being disturbed, at least, by what Trump is doing. That's his bar. Now, it could be argued, or at least the the Republican argument could be, uh, prior to all this evidence about quid pro quo coming out, that his actions in soliciting help from a foreign government, maybe that was bad, maybe that was wrong, but it wasn't impeachable. So Lindsey Graham is instead going further and saying, my bar is quid pro quo. So now that Sondland has come back and confirmed to, you know, as a Trump appointed ambassador, that there was in fact quid pro quo involved, naturally, Lindsey Graham acknowledged, well, I did set that defeasibility test and I am an honest Southern man. So I suppose I have to do the principled thing and uh, support the impeachment inquiry. Man, that is that is just huge news. Really different from the news that I was reading. Um, oh, really? Now that you say what was that. the news that you were reading? Yeah. Um, something along the lines of uh, um, that there's no way you could change Lindsey Graham's mind uh, and that there was no quid pro quo. Something along those, that, those lines, right? Huh. That's interesting because I this article just randomly appeared on my computer. Like I didn't have this up uh, before this, where apparently on Tuesday he said, uh, "I don't care what anybody else says about the phone call. The phone call I've already made my own, made up my own mind, is fine." I.e., no facts about the phone call <laughs> or the pattern of quid pro quo requested by the Trump administration from the Ukraine. 
no no facts could change my opinion about the impeachability of those activities. Yeah, and this was after he refused to straight up even read the testimony of Sondland. He said, quote, I don't care what any bureaucrat says. A bureaucrat, again, yeah. who is a wealthy Republican donor who Trump appointed. So Lindsey Graham's perspective echoes a lot of the larger uh, points that Republicans are making at this point, and that I think a lot of um, like Republican leaning constituents are actually buying into. And like the basic argument is that like there's no good evidence that Trump did like anything wrong. That whatever he did is like in the normal course of foreign policy, and anything that looks like it's over the line is you know only coming from unreliable and biased and lying witnesses what they're trying to do is not like attack as we talked about last week attack like the substance of the argument but more attack um the people that are you know putting that evidence forward and it's like it's circularly fallacious logic because basically what they say is like if you criticize donald trump then you're like out to get him and you're unreasonably biased. And so if you're out to get him, then your testimony can't be trusted or taken seriously. And therefore, any testimony against Trump must be a lie and can't yeah, be taken seriously. It's circular seriously. logic. There's no, no way you can win. Which is, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly, which is how we've seen them, you know, uh, we saw them slander Vindman last last week and they've pushed out Republicans that have spoken out against Trump because their conclusion is that if you speak out against Trump, yeah. you're lying and there's no yeah. way to get around that. And so it's actually impossible to construct a feasibility test that overcomes yeah. the circularity yeah. of their logic. Another very uh, interesting defense of the president came recently from Senator John Kennedy from uh, Louisiana, a Republican from Louisiana, not the fun John Kennedy, the uh, the one from Louisiana, mm -hmm. um, where he went after. <laughs> oh, I'm not from <laughs> where Louisiana. He went after Nancy Pelosi for trying to impeach Donald Trump, where she said, "Quote: In three short years, Donald Trump has doubled the growth of the greatest economy in all human history." Which, side note, was just a continuation of stuff from Obama. Back to the quotation. And do you know what our Democratic friends have done for him? Nancy Pelosi is trying to impeach him. I don't mean any disrespect, but it must suck to be that dumb. <laughs> no offense. Isn't Nancy Pelosi just a big poopy face for this entire process? I mean, geez, that's so childish. Yeah, it just... like, And also, I love the... I don't mean any disrespect, seriously. <laughs> and it is very interesting that Senator John Kennedy seems to be viewing calling someone dumb as a criticism, considering the fact that he actually used uh, the moron defense specifically on Trump in this whole impeachment inquiry. So the argument that some Republicans are testing out now is to admit that there was quid pro quo, but to suggest that there was not corrupt intent with that quid pro quo. In fact, he recently said in an interview with the Washington Post, he said, um, yeah, he did it, but it doesn't rise to the level of high crimes or misdemeanors. 
To me, it all turns to intent, motive. Did the president have a culpable state of mind? Based on the evidence that I see, that I've been allowed to see, the president does not have a culpable state of mind. Ah, I didn't I didn't actually know he was a medium able to read the president's mind, but you know, whatever. <laughs> I suppose. But what I think is interesting is if the best defense you have of the president is he's too dumb to be corrupt, you shouldn't be going after other people for being dumb. <laughs> I mean, just to... <laughs> And importantly, like the Republicans are basically trying to misdirect the attention of people to focus on intent and focus on like a legal argument about corruption. They're basically trying to say that if we can't prove that Donald Trump had corrupt intent, then we can't make the criminal case of corruption or conspiracy against him. And as we said at the top of this segment, the criminal case is not the requirement here. Yes, it's high crimes and misdemeanors, but ultimately like this is a political determination. And ultimately this is about the fitness of the president um, to, you know, serve the United States. And so like, now that, that, that being said real quick, that doesn't mean that he's not committing actual crimes. I mean, Oh no, I can, you know, we can very easily point to the quotation and point to the crime associated with what he said. Um, in order to demonstrate the crime. Sure, exactly. But like the intent to have done so, and, and it's pretty freaking clear that it's there, but even, but I think the red, it's the frustrating red herring is that like we're expected to like hold this to the standard of like a criminal prosecution where like you're expected to hold all the elements of the crime beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's just not applicable here. It's important to keep that in mind so yeah. that as, yeah. um, these public hearings are going on and you're hearing about them in the media, always keep in mind that, you know, this is not a public criminal trial. This is an impeachment proceeding. And let's also not forget that many of these Republicans were present during the Bill Clinton impeachment. Apparently they thought getting a blowjob in the Oval Office, that was impeachable, but coordinating, trying to coordinate with a foreign government to take out a political opponent, that's not impeachable. I mean, Again, this comes down to the principle of intellectual honesty and the fact that so many of these people are dishonest actors. They are not making good faith arguments. And ultimately, uh, you can't really depend on any of them to give you any honest analysis of the situation because all they're going to do is deflect. They have a set goal. They have a conclusion. And all they're going to do is try to work backwards from that conclusion in order to trick you into thinking that what you're hearing and what you're seeing is not what's happening, which by the way, is, act in an, is an actual quote from Donald Trump. And now that we've walked you through yet another update on the never-ending story of Donald Trump's impeachment, um, we are going to go to one of our favorite segments. Ass Hat of, the, of week. the Week. All right. This week is quite possibly the biggest asshat that we've covered so far. Our first asshat was a raging homophobe. Our second asshat was a raging ableist. Tell us about this week's asshat, Michael. 
This week, as you pointed out, it's even better. Not only do we have a homophobe and an ableist, but he's a priest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we have some comments from priest Dominic Valan Mahal, who um, is a controversial leader of um, the Eastern Syro-Malabar Catholic Church, which is located in India. And, uh, yeah, he had some, some really freaking horrible things to say about, uh, people with disabilities. Nathan, I don't think I can bring myself to quote this. Why don't you walk us through exactly what he said? Yeah. Yeah. I, I should probably be the one to say this as the, as the one who actually has autism. Um, so here's what he said. First off. Um, and uh, this was, uh, this was in one of his, uh, sermons. He said, why does this generation have autism and hyperactivity? That is to say, mentally retarded children are in abundance, but he had an answer, Michael. He had an answer for where these autistic children like myself, when I was a child, where we actually came from. I think you mean God had an answer, Nathan. Yeah, God had, you're right. God had an answer. So the answer is. Adultery, masturbation, homosexuality, porn. If you are addicted to these, I say to you, in the name of God, when you get married and have children, there's a possibility of bearing these types of children. They lead an animal-like life. They copulate like animals. They bear children like animals. Therefore, those children will be like animals. This story came from the Irish Times, and... Um, basically the archbishop, uh, in Ireland had invited this person to come speak in response. We always like to bring these and these on a high note in response, um, the Syro Malabar community in, in Ireland launched a petition, um, to the minister of justice, Charlie Flanagan to have, um, uh, Mr. Valan Mahal actually banned from the entire country in order to prevent him from coming and speaking uh, at the church in Ireland. <laughs> now, we here at The Perspectrum are definitely advocates of free speech. And um, I'm not entirely sure that this was the best course of action to fight against it, but it does represent a deep passion against, like, just horrific rhetoric that... He basically calls autistics animals. Um, and also, I'd just like to point one thing out that was kind of bothering me about this. W one thing that was bothering me. Um, he's talking about uh, gay sex, how gay sex leads to autistic children. Um, <laughs> you guys got his anatomy wrong you know, there, I think. I'm, I'm, I'm no doctor. Um <laughs> But I'm pretty sure that part of the benefit of most gay sex, you know, obviously with the exception of uh, uh, of people that might be transgender, um, I'm pretty sure that most gay sex doesn't lead to any children. So I, I, I think he's got another his sex wrong. <laughs> Just another sin. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah. This so guy's... apparently... Apparently, uh, the result of apparently I'm a result of uh, my cisgender 
father and my cisgender mother being gay for each other? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, yeah. We shouldn't try to make sense of nonsensical arguments. But anyway, yep. congratulations to the people of Ireland for getting this guy banned. It may not be the best solution, but I love your enthusiasm. And congratulations to Dominic Valan Mahal for being our Ass Hat of the Week. Of the week. All right. Let's talk about the primaries. So, last week, we spent some time laying out aspects of Elizabeth Warren's new Medicare for All plan. And there are some new things that have kind of been cropping up um, about analysis of her policy. Now, I definitely did present it in a good light last week. And one thing I will say is that I do still think that overall, her policy is significantly better than our current system. Now, our current system's a dumpster fire, but it is still better than that. And I will even go so far as to say that of the healthcare plans currently proposed in the Democratic field, hers is probably the second best. However, there is one important thing to discuss with regard to one of the ways that she will be planning to pay for uh, her health care plan. And I briefly kind of addressed this last week, um, but I want to talk a little bit more about the main problem um, this week. So one of the ideas that she had to get approximately uh, $9 trillion of the necessary uh, of what is necessary to pay for the policy um, from a simple reallocation of what employers are currently paying to private insurance companies and just having them pay that to the federal government based on how many employees they have. So there have been so my criticism of that last week was that that makes Medicare for all significantly less pro-business because one major pro-business argument is the fact that if you take away the burden of employers in pay, uh, the burden they have for paying for healthcare, then um, that is a really good pro-business argument and more people might be more likely to go with that. And you'll definitely take away arguments that a lot of people have about a lot of healthcare plans being anti-small business. Furthermore, that also gives the workers more leveraging power because there's less that they're going to be negotiating yeah. for. And it's not that her plan leaves businesses to the wayside. Warren is, you know, typically, except with regard to the ultra wealthy, uh, pretty well-rounded um, in regards to, like, making sure her plans don't leave anyone too far in the lurch. The $9 trillion that um, companies currently pay into the medical or into the healthcare system, she's actually only proposing that 98% of that be redirected to the federal government and that the companies actually keep 2% of that for themselves. So basically they're getting a 2% discount on that under the Warren plan. So still somewhat pro-business, definitely. Yeah, yeah. But definitely not like what it could be. Um, so one of the problems with this is that it turns the amount that's paid into a headcount rather than a progressive tax rate. That means that people are paying the same amount 
per employee rather than paying based on the total income of a business or corporation, which creates a more regressive tax rate with regard to percentages as opposed to a progressive tax rate in which uh, based on percentages, the biggest businesses pay the most and then the small uh, and the smallest businesses pay the least based on their entire income. Yeah, so let's let's put that into like some more concrete terms that you might understand from say your job. Say you and your CEO of your company are currently both um, on the same healthcare plan. So say you pay 60 bucks every two weeks out of your paycheck and then that goes to your healthcare plan and, and it's the same plan. Um, today, what that looks like is you both pay the same amount and under the Warren plan, that would look the same way. You would both be paying the same amount into your plan even though your CEO makes significantly more than you. So when you think about taxes and like payroll taxes, it's based on a percentage of your income that increases the more you earn. So that's considered a more progressive system. So yeah. instead of me paying a much larger portion of my income yeah. or you know, into a system than the CEO because we're both paying the same amount, um, it's more graduated to follow the curve of our yeah. income. And another thing that's important to point out is the reason why she proposed this plan in the first place was to address an argument that was already kind of intellectually dishonest to begin with. Now, I do think it was fair to criticize her for not being honest about whether or not, um, or not being direct about whether or not middle-class taxes were going to go up, but at the same time, capitulating to that talking point of middle-class tax raise bad, despite the fact that total costs would go down under uh, the Medicare for All plan written by Bernie Sanders, um, that capitulating to that narrative and creating a bill that uh, seems to be more progressive, seems to not have uh, not affect the middle class tax uh, tax rate in any meaningful way, but in practice actually comes uh, comes to be a bit more regressive and actually uh, take more money away from the middle class than uh, would a small income tax rate increase. Um, that does represent a weak spot in this plan in comparison to Bernie Sanders. Yeah, especially like especially this portion of the plan where she's focusing on reallocating company spending. It's it's it would be so much better if they got rid of that section of the plan and then levied a slightly higher payroll tax on employees. Like that would be a much more progressive, much more much better structure for getting that $8.8 trillion into the plan. But because we don't want to say we're increasing taxes, we're actually coming up with a worse version. Yeah. Yeah. Which does come so, down to definitely a weak spot. Which does come down to uh, actually goes back to our first episode of principle versus strategy. On paper, it might be more politically palatable to say that I am working against a middle class tax rate. Um, or I'm, I'm not going to create any new middle class taxes. But then in practice, it does end up affecting the middle class in more of a way than, um, than the original plan would have actually done. So one of the important reasons why we feel like we needed to bring this up is because we do care a lot about being intellectually honest. Now, like I said, ultimately, I think this plan is a pretty good plan, and it does uh, create a lot of necessary reforms, and it is better than 
anybody else's plan in the field uh, besides, you know, of course, Bernie Sanders. Um, but we still need to be intellectually honest about the weak spots of the plans that we support, even if we do still ultimately support them. Yeah, exactly. And and that ties back to the theme of this episode, which is about the defensive the feasibility test. You know, if if over the coming months it comes out that the assumptions underlying this plan are seriously off and that in fact this would end up being you know worse for whatever reason than either an alternative plan or you know god forbid our current system i don't know how that's possible but you know alternative universe (laughs) um then like naturally we would you'd have to come out and say and we will that you know this is this plan is not worth supporting, and as we promised, we will be doing a deep dive into um, the comparison of the Warren and Bernie plans as we get closer to the primaries. And speaking of a Bernie plan, um, one thing that I'd like to talk about is he recently came out with a comprehensive plan on immigration. Uh, oh, that's very exciting. Yes, so. I want to go ahead and read through some of these proposals. And the great thing about these proposals is there are a lot of smaller issues that people talk about a lot in the media and in Washington that get a lot of news coverage that don't actually address a lot of the underlying institutional reasons why our immigration system is so messed up. This actually does that in a lot of ways. Hallelujah. So let's go through this. First off, Um, He says we would renegotiate deals that uh, uh, trade deals that strengthen us and not undermine the rules of workers in the United States and abroad and oppose any new trade agreements that does not have adequate labor standards. Another part of this plan is that uh, he would start a program to accept at least 50,000 more immigrants that were displaced by climate change. Um, He would... Uh, makes he would ha- have his Medicare for all plan cover everybody in America regardless of immigration status. Um, he plans to have a whistleblower visa, which basically means that it would encourage immigrant workers to speak out against exploitive behavior without fearing deportation. One of the one of the huge problems that often happens at farms in which there are a lot of uh, undocumented immigrants working is that there is a large degree of sexual assault. And if an undocumented immigrant is sexually assaulted, they can't really report that to the police because then they might get deported. Um, also, uh, he would, and th- this part is really important, he would make it a requirement to pay $15 an hour Um, to pay domestic workers regardless of immigration status. Now, one of the reasons why it's important to address this is because one of the primary reasons why a lot of uh, corporate lobbyists do their best to make sure that no meaningful legislation comes out of Washington to either increase the number of legal immigrants, so, uh, you know, create amnesty for undocumented immigrants currently in the United States, or to decrease the number of undocumented immigrants because you know, it's been studied in and on several occasions that an increase of border security actually ends up increasing the number of undocumented immigrants in the country because it reduces circular migration. So people aren't disincentivized to come in, but they are disincentivized to go back. So they end up just staying here. So ultimately, the number of undocumented immigrants continues to increase. And that's because all of these major corporations benefit heavily from undocumented labor. 
So another thing, and this is something that he could do through executive authority, which is uh, end any construction of Trump's border wall, which, I mean, not most of Tr the construction of the border wall has just been shoring up a few small edges, like the border wall is not really uh, under construction in any meaningful way. There's just a little bit of... Um, of rebuilding parts that were already there. And he would also uh, overturn the travel ban, um, the, the Muslim ban um, that the United States had in place. Um, he plans to expend, expand Obama-era uh, protections on immigrants from deportation. Um, he would give legal status to the 1.8 million young immigrants that are uh, in the Deferred Action for Child Arrivals, the DACA program, the DREAMers. Um, he would, uh, push for Congress to establish a law to create a pathway to citizenship for the 11 million undocumented immigrants currently in the country. Um, he would put, uh, unauthorized border categories into the same category as overstaying a work visa and make it a civil offense rather than a criminal violation. This part is an, this part is an important thing to bring up because one of the annoying things that a lot of Republicans like to try to argue is that they make making it a civil offense rather than a criminal offense uh, to cross the border synonymous with advocating for open borders. But that's complete straw man. There's no actual Democrat that is running for president, and there are no major Democrats uh, that have any power over the border in any meaningful way that are calling for open borders. It's complete straw man. You shouldn't believe anybody that tries to make that claim. Um, he, would also, uh, he also wants to expand uh, immigration courts, um, make temporary housing for immigrants uh, more humane, um, create a, a $40 billion federal grant program for the legal defense of uh, employee of immigrants. And then the last thing, and this is definitely going to be the most controversial one in right-wing circles, um, is to scrap ICE and uh, Customs and Border Patrol and he would reallocate what they do, the deportation and the border enforcement functions, to the Justice Department, and uh, the customs would fall to the Treasury Department, and naturalizing and citizenship would go to the State Department. So the functions of ICE and Customs and Border Patrol would not be gone. He would just have them be a part of existing federal agencies, so that way there could be better oversight on those specific uh, on those uh, specific actions that are that are util that are uh, uh, taken by these organizations, and also better coordination within the organizations with overlapping functions. Um, yeah. So you got like, you know, the DOJ. It makes total sense that they would cover the inf the in, uh, the legal and enforcement side of that, and um, you know, it, it makes it makes total sense that you would integrate those. Uh, functions into parts of the government that are already doing them, that are already taking those actions with regard to other groups aside from immigrants. Yeah. So one thing that you're going to hear a lot of from right-wingers is um, the purpose of this plan is one, to create open borders, which it's not, and two, to abolish any form of law enforcement with regard to the borders, which, again, it's just about reallocation and ensuring that there is actual, um, uh, that there is a better ability for oversight of those actions taken by those agencies. So 
a lot of the arguments that are going to take place are going to be intellectually dishonest. So it sounds like it's a really um, thorough kind of uh, proposal. It's certainly a thorough wish list of things that he wants to address and kind of indications of how he wants to address them. Um, I'd be excited to see how that kind of is borne out um, in policy if he becomes president or, you know, as the plan kind of develops over time uh, and is examined via debates and other types of scrutiny, like how it kind of weathers under pressure. So at this point, let's go ahead and end out with our highlights of the week. Michael, would you like to go first? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So as usual, um, I was visiting with Bree this weekend and we had an extra day for Veterans Day, which was just awesome. Um, It was just wonderful to get to be together for an extra day. Yeah. Uh, I did not have a day off for Veterans Day. (laughs) So yeah, what about you, Nathan? Well, my huge highlight was being able to see the state that I was born in and that I love finally turn blue for the first time in my life. And it was so great to see just how passionate people were. Unfortunately, my district was not one of the ones that flipped, but I saw a lot of young people at the polls. I saw a lot of uh, turnout at the polls. I saw a lot of passion. And it's just it's just so great to see that in local elections. Also, Jess and I, uh, Jess is my wife, uh, we watched Joker together. And oh. Joker was an amazing Brie and movie. I just watched Joker this weekend too. It was yeah, it was so freaking. Oh good. my gosh, we like sat stunned in the theater afterwards for a little while. Yeah, same here. Absolutely, same insane. here. That was we just looked at each other and I was just like, that was a good movie, and she was like, yeah. Joaquin, and we spent like the next three hours just talking about it. It was amazing. Yeah, Joaquin Phoenix did an amazing job, and. It like totally surprised. Give that me. man like, an Oscar. The kind, absolutely, and the kind of movie that it turned out to be, like kind of a character piece. Just, mm. it was so surprising. I was, I was kind of half expecting like, you know, almost like a Batman movie, and it was so much yeah. more about like the development it, of the character. Oh, so it did good. not feel like a superhero movie or a super villain movie. No, that's the thing. Or it a Batman didn't feel movie. Like a super villain. It was yeah. just. Oh my God. All right. It, it wasn't about vilifying the Joker. Absolutely amazing. All right. So we'll end on that insane note. <laughs> <laughs> um, and thanks everybody for listening and keep an eye out for episode four later on. Bye.